Hi and welcome to the Mind Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Nielsen, a Norwegian success mindset coach, who alongside this podcast help business owners, CEOs, and athletes develop the necessary mental skills to excel in stressful situations and attain peak performance for consistent successful results. With this work passion in mind, I created the Mind Coaching Podcast for the international listeners of Mental Trainer Podcasten, that is a top podcast in Norwegian, with guests ranging from top professors, shark attack survivors, health experts, and extreme sport athletes. In today's episode 16, I am joined by Dr. Jordan B. Peterson for the third time. He's a Canadian clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He has also published more than 100 scientific papers, transforming the modern understanding of personality and revolutionized the psychology of religion with his book Maps of Meaning, the Architecture of Belief. As a Harvard professor, he was nominated for a prestigious Levison Teaching Prize and is regarded by his students as one of the three truly life-changing teachers. His YouTube channel has over 300,000 subscribers, 12 million views, and Dr. Peterson's online self-help program, The Self-Altering Suit, was featured in the Oprah Magazine and CBC Radio. You have also heard him on Joe Rogan Experience. His program has helped over 150,000 people resolve the problem of their past and radically improve their future. Now, let's not keep you more into this success history and impressive following, and let's welcome the man himself. Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Welcome to the show, Professor Jordan. Welcome back. Good to see you again. Thanks for the invitation. Likewise, Jordan. I wanted to talk to you because, in, especially in Europe these days, uh, we experience this fear of terror. And uh, uh, the last Sunday's episode, I talked to the former head of uh, counterintelligence here in Norway. And he, even he said that he's been looking for suspicious behavior when he's out traveling these days. Uh, and uh, he has uh, his experience as a general from the military. And he said that uh, normally he's very analytic and uh, does not uh, feel this much fear. Did he say why? What is it What is it that's changed as far as he was concerned? Uh, what has changed is his unpredictability. Right. Uh, as he, as from his logic mind, he also also understand that there's more people dying from car accidents than is from uh, terror. So uh, his logic mind understands it. But uh, I think it's yeah. a lot about the media these days. We uh, read about and hear it about it almost every day that this uh, terror well, in England and so on. Yes. Well, the other thing too is that you know what people don't like about the thing about traffic deaths is that they're. <clears throat> statistically predictable okay. and they're not going to get worse they're not going to get better maybe or maybe they will when cars have artificial intelligence mm-hmm. but they're not going to get worse and so people don't mind known risk but they really don't like unknown risk and you know it's if if if, if you wake up in the morning and you have a sharp ache in your side and it doesn't go away after a few days that becomes an unknown risk. And especially if you're high in negative emotion, you're going to start wondering about all the million things it could be. Mm. And that's very anxiety provoking. And the thing about these terrorist acts is we don't know what they signify. And so they might signify, they might signify that Islam and the West are at war. Like maybe we're in a war because people often don't know that they're in a war when a war starts. Or maybe it's just a few random crazy people and we can discount it as, you know, a tiny ongoing terrorist threat that we're never going to permanently get rid of because there's always going to be people who are motivated by one form of extremism or another. Or maybe it's a harbinger of the death of Western civilization and the Islamization of the entire European continent. Or maybe, you know, the, the possibilities, the possibilities are too large for people to compute. Mm. And so, and then of course, there's the brutality and malevolence that's associated with the attack and the association between all of that and the tremendous continued instability in the Middle East and throughout the Islamic countries and the whole migration issue that's, that's, that's been an ongoing, an ongoing crisis in Europe and, and, and that, and that no one knows exactly how to manage and everyone's fear about whether or not Islam 
Western values of individuality can actually coexist. I mean, God, it's such a rat's nest of problems. It's no wonder that people are on edge about it. And we actually don't know the answer to any of these things. Like it isn't obvious. It's obvious to me that the vast majority of Muslims in the world are going about their lives peaceably. But it isn't obvious to me that Islam is commensurate with Western values. Now, maybe it is, but, and I've talked to some people who've made a reasonable case that it might be. Yeah, and so, you know, with, it's very difficult in the modern world to have a serious conversation about these issues because everybody's so afraid to, either to be a fascist or to be an Islamophobe, as if there's no center ground. And, of course, it's rather frightening. It can be rather frightening to talk about Islam in general because if you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing, like those Danish cartoonists, then all hell can break loose. And so what happens because of all that uncertainty is that when there is a terrorist attack, even though the absolute magnitude of the carnage is low, all of this underlying uncertainty comes pouring forward. And and uh, no one knows what to do about that. And, and the conversation hasn't been helpful. Like in, in Canada, our attitude is, Oh, every culture is basically equivalent and everyone wants peace and order and prosperity. And it's like, well, that might be the case. And the immigration situation in Canada has been really positive, I must say. I mean, Toronto has a tremendously high proportion of immigrants and the city is just thriving. It's peaceful. There's no crime. Um, the real estate is booming. It's like for whatever reason, Toronto seems to be working. Vancouver has a very high rate of immigration. Most of that's from China and the Pacific Rim countries. And there's some tension there because real estate prices are spiraling out of control. But the immigration model seems to be working. And I would say that people seem to be, if not assimilating, and I think they probably are assimilating, certainly existing together peaceably. In Europe, the situation seems different. And and it, it isn't obvious why even. So, I don't know. Mm. It's There's a lot to sort out there. One question I have for you, Jordan. Uh, fear is about the stories we tell ourselves. Also, That's the reason we feel fear. And uh, the story we uh, tell ourselves are often maximized when it comes to crisis. Can you elaborate on why we do this and how we can take control of the crisis we tell ourselves when it comes to terrorism, for example? Well, a general rule for dealing with uncertainty is to, it's like an Occam's razor. So Occam's razor is the old scientific dictum that you should never multiply your explanation, the complexity of your explanation beyond necessity. So it, it's from, it's, it's, it's derived from an ancient Greek um, maxim by a philosopher who was named Occam, O-C-C-A-M, I believe he was Greek. And so it's often reframed as, the simplest explanation is generally the best explanation. And so one of the ways that you dampen down your response to crisis is to start with the initial supposition that it's no worse than it has to be. And so with the terrorist attacks, you know, I would say, and I think this is actually reasonable, is that it isn't, there has, there has been a baseline level of radical political activity that's run through the West, broadly speaking, on a permanent basis. In the 1960s, you saw this with uh, airline hijackings and the radical leftists. And um, there's always there's always going to be a, a certain a certain amount of, of violent instability on the on the fringes of the political front. And so the simplest explanation is that this is just another manifestation of that. And that it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to happen now and then. It's not going to spiral out of control. People will adapt and 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 regulate it, and and we'll move on with our lives. Whether the problem is is that there's no way we can determine whether or not that's true, and that and that's and there's no real way of testing it, and so and that's why people have been set on edge. And I do think the other thing is is that there has to be a conversation. This, this is the important thing. There has to be a conversation about the fact that the Islamic world and the Judeo-Christian world are not the same worlds and that we don't know how to bridge the gap. We're not exactly sure how to bridge the conceptual gap. 
And that's a very difficult conversation to have. Mm. So it's a conversation. I spoke with Ayan Herzi Ali the other day, and I'm going to start a series of dialogues on Islam and, and, and Christianity, essentially. That's the to find out. And I mean, Herzi Ali is a great critic of Islam. She thinks that its fundamental doctrines are are not necessarily commensurate with Western individuality and democracy. There are informed observers of Islam who believe that she's overstating the problem. Um, we better figure it out. Uh, as uh, the normal public, what can we do as uh, individual human beings? Uh, and we feel this fear and uh, what you're standing in front of now, uh, Jordan. I, you know, I wish I knew the answer to that, but I don't. Except to say, like the British say, uh, keep calm and carry on. I mean, it isn't helpful to allow fear to stop you from going about your normal day-to-day -day activities. That doesn't seem to be a useful endeavor. And it doesn't help to engage in tit-for-tat behavior, you know. I mean, but other than that, I don't have a lot of... I don't have a lot of solutions. It, it's, mm. an, it's not a problem that, that manifests a self-evident solution. And that's why there's so much political debate about it. I mean, and the debate is polarizing people. I mean, you see this in, you see this particularly in Europe where there are many, many people who believe that the more open the immigration policy, the better. And there are, mm. there are rationale, there's rationales for that. Not least the declining birth rates in the in the European communities, and there are other people who think, well, enough is enough. We've hit our capacity to digest newcomers, and we should we should slam the damn border shut and deal with the with the with the differences that we've already invited into our communities. I can't tell where along the distribution the appropriate answer to that question lies. I don't know. Uh, what are the reasons that we are even uh, either left or right, black or white? Why are we never gray? Why are we either close the border or open the border? Why is that? Uh... Well, I think that I, there, it, there seems to be something about the current political situation that is producing that kind of polarization. And I'm not like I just watched a National Rifle Association ad the other day. Um, so the NRA, you may know this, you may not. It's it's the biggest organization of, of gun owners in, in the United States. It's a very powerful lobby group, and it tends to be quite right-leaning in its in its messages. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is a pretty heavily armed population, as is Canada, by the way. There are plenty of, of, of rifles and pistols in private hands in Canada. The proportion of ownership is about the same. But, Jesus, the NRA ad was, it sounded like it was a, a call to the possibility of civil war. You know, it was showing all the Antifa uh, riots at the Berkeley campuses and the violence that's emerged on the streets and talking about uh, the fundamental values of the United States being under assault. And it was basically a call to arms. And it was really eye-opening, I guess. And, and, I mean, the reason that people want closed versus open borders to a large degree, seems to depend on their biological temperament. And so people who are high in trait openness, which is a creativity dimension, and low in trait conscientiousness, which is associated with dutifulness and, and, uh, and, and industriousness and, and orderliness, those people want, if they're low in openness, that's the creative, sorry, let me rephrase that. If they're high in openness, that's the creativity dimension. And low in conscientiousness, that's industriousness and orderliness. Then they want open borders. And the reason for that is people like that don't see any reason to keep things in order and to restrict interactions between different sections of reality. And then the the people who are on the opposite end of this, and, and they're also interested in the interchange of ideas that comes when you mix things up. And those are the real liberal left types. And then on the right-hand side of the political spectrum, you have people who are high in conscientiousness, specifically orderliness. They're quite disgust-sensitive. They like to keep things in the boxes that they belong in. It simplifies the world. And they're industrious and low in creativity. And so... They like things to stay the way they are, and they're not that interested in the mixing of ideas. And so those are, 
th those that that actually constitutes the spectrum of political views because I think the fundamental difference between people in their political views is basically how open versus closed they would like borders to be and it's borders between everything and the, the 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 problem is is that there's no correct answer to that solution to to that problem because sometimes the answer is we're too restricted and tight and we need to open up and sometimes the answer is we're too open and loose and we need to tighten up and the political debate is about trying to determine where we are in that in that space and then to discuss what might be done about it but now we're polarizing and people aren't talking to each other. And you really see that happening in the United States. And, and, and it's, I think it's accelerating rather than, than declining. And that is just not good. From what I cannot understand is from our personality types and from the psychology side of it, why is it that we polarize this much? Is, is it uh, the external circumstances about the media and the politics that make it this way? Or why can't we see the gray in the middle? Well, that's a good question. It's one I've been trying to figure out for the last year, I would say, when I started watching this polarization really starting to occur and, and starting to occur in Canada, too. It's which and Canada, like we don't have a real right wing. We don't have a real left wing. Like we're pretty crammed right in the moderate middle, you know. Um, so to see any polarization at all happen in Canada is a pretty strange thing. And it certainly hasn't progressed to the point that, that that's characteristic of the United States, for example. But. But why it's occurring, I think, I do think that in large part, the universities, at least in North America, the universities are to blame because the universities have genuine, have genuinely produced a large cohort of radical postmodern activists who are pushing far too hard on the radical left. And they're, they're, they're destabilizing things and they're producing a backlash on the not only not only on the radical right, but on the entire political continuum that's to the right of the radical left. They're really and and it, a lot of it's happening at a level that people can't articulate, which is why, for example, so many people supported Trump. You know, like I, I know what happened with Trump is people think there are Trump supporters in the U.S. And that's really not true. There are some. But the vast majority of people, I believe, in the United States went into the voting booth, rather ambivalent. And on the one hand, they had the programmatic, postmodern, well-formulated and audience-tested, sophisticated lies of Hillary Clinton versus the impulsive, self-serving and spontaneous lies of Trump. And they decided that they preferred the latter to the former. But that wasn't because they really believed, I don't. I think very few people believed that Trump would be a really outstanding president and and the fact that trump got elected and i've gone down to the united states and i talked to a very reasonable friend of mine who was a professor at the at, at harvard and when she talked about trump supporters she was really she treated them like they were enemies in in, in the manner that she in the manner that okay. she conducted her her discussion it was quite shocking to me because she's certainly not a a politically radical person and she's a very reasonable and well-informed person but what seems to be happening in the united states is that the hillary supporters and the trump supporters have divided into camps of enmity and they're not talking to each other anymore and that's a really bad thing and so and you know i think one of the one time that once those things start and people kind of close their the lines of communication across the spectrum then things start to polarize and they pull apart and they pull apart and that can happen extremely fast. And that's that's the danger that's in front of us at the moment, I think, especially in the United States. Let's take your professor friend yep. as an example. Yep. Uh, what is the reason that they become this uh, afraid or uh, irritated? Or do they feel threatened? Or What's the reason they are becoming this polarized? There must be something that they feel threatened about. Well, I think the the, the people on the right feel threatened by the, I think they mostly feel threatened by intellectual radicalism, even though they're not necessarily articulating it in that matter. I think that's why the working class, for example, dumped the Democrats. That, and that's a bad side because the Democrats have been the working class party for a very long period of time. And the working class actually needs representation. And 
the Democrats went for identity politics and radical left, like postmodern ideology instead of staying aligned with the Democrats. And they did that consciously. And that was a very bad decision. And so they alienated a huge part of the American population by doing that. And now they're treating them like they're stupid rednecks. And they're, and some of them are, and, but most of them aren't, most of them are just the people down the street. And, and they, I think what happens when you look across the political divide is that you caricature your, your opposition, you, you form oversimplified views of who they are, and then you caricature them. And then what you're looking at is like a monstrous caricature, and then you become afraid of that. And the, so the, the left sees the specter of the redneck fa- armed redneck fascist who's ready to dispense with all of the civil rights progress in the United States for the last 50 years. And then the right looks left and thinks these people are trying to knock down the foundations of Western civilization. And I actually have a little more sympathy for the people on the right who are afraid of the left because the radical left is, in fact, trying to knock out the foundation from underneath Western civilization. And there's plenty of people like that at the universities who are pursuing that with with a fair degree of purpose and certainty. So some of the reason that the polarization is occurring is because there is an active intellectual movement that's aimed at undermining the the fundamental structures of Western civilization. That's what it looks like to me. That's 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 the postmodern neo-Marxist types, and there's plenty of them, and they're doing a lot of damage in my estimation. I think they're driving the polarization. That's how it looks to me. From your uh, from your perspective, then, uh, Professor, why is it that they are doing this? Well, I think the fundamental issue is resentment. I mean, I think that I, I think it's resentment and ingratitude fundamentally, combined with a fair bit of historical ignorance, because uh, I can't come up with any other reason. The like the postmodernists were most of the people who established postmodernism as a philosophy were. Marxist slash revolution student revolutionaries in the 1960s in 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 France, and it became intellectually and morally untenable to maintain alliance with a Marxist doctrine after all of the horrors of the Soviet Union and Maoist China were finally revealed, and they were revealed in re, were revealed incontrovertibly by the late 60s, and so the Marxist types had to find another story to justify but to justify what i think to justify their hatred for anyone who had more power or authority or wealth than they did that that's what it looks like to me it it looks like it's mm. it's almost pure resentment that's underneath this and i think that that's why the postmodernists are also so obsessed with power and make the claim constantly that the only thing that motivates that the only thing that's important about people is their group identity and the only thing that motivates Human interaction is power. It's like that's a very narrow and cynical view of human nature, but it also justifies using power in response. And like I see snippets of this in in university life in in uh, say in places like the University of Toronto, which is actually quite a conservative campus, all things considered. I see it in the attitude, in the dismissive attitude that intellectuals and in the social sciences and perhaps more more so in the humanities, have for capitalism and for business people. You know, they're very, they're very, yes, contemptuous of that realm of activity. And when I look at that, I think, well, why do you have the right to be contemptuous of that entire realm of activity? It's a very complex realm of activity, the, the business world. There's plenty of extraordinarily competent people who are engaged in it. They're certainly not all evil any more than all the academics are evil. I mean, and... So what is it that bothers you about it so much? And I think, well, it's jealousy. At least it's jealousy in part. One of the things that that characterizes it, an academic's life, for example, is that there's a pretty serious salary cap. Now, it's not like we're starving because we're not. But, but academics aren't paid like high-level executives or like CEOs of large companies. And I think a large part of what drives the resentment of capitalism is the fact that the the left-wing academic types just aren't raking in the dough like the people they're irritated about you know they're not they're they're in the they're in the top one percent often but you know that's generally not enough because if you're in the top percent then you're just jealous of the people who are in the top one-tenth of one percent and 
those people are jealous of the people who are in the top one one hundredth of a percent. And so, you know, because so the funny thing that, like, you know, when you when you speak to someone who's who complains about financial inequality, what you discover very quickly is that they define wealthy as anyone who has more money than them. Not noticing that they're like I, I see this with the student radicals, for example, at places like Yale. I mean, for those students to be complaining about the top one percent to me is just absurd beyond comprehension. Because if you're a student, and I don't care what your racial background is, or your gender, or your ethnicity, or your sexual proclivity, or any of that, if you're a student at Yale, man, you're a, you're in you're in training to be part of the one percent. You're just a baby one percenter, and the idea that you should be out there like waving placards about how unfair that the capitalist system is when you're in a position of opportunity like that is is well it's just beyond it's just jaw-dropping as far as i can tell it's just beyond comprehension so the last time we spoke uh jordan we also talked about depression and personality types and especially from all the uh, comments uh people liked uh, you talked about depression Yeah, and the reason for that, I think, is that you gave some uh, you gave some techniques and uh, what people can do about it. And I was wondering if you had some kind of the same techniques or something for fear. Well, I think the best antidote to fear, all things considered, is to be pursuing in your life something that you really think is worth pursuing. Because the best antidote to fear isn't lack of fear. The best antidote to fear is courage, right? The, and those are different things. Like if if someone comes to psychotherapy and they have too many fears. You actually don't teach them. Their fear may reduce across time, but it's not because you teach them to be less fearful. What happens is you teach them to be more courageous and encourage them to be more courageous. And then as a consequence of that, they become more fearful. And so what I would say with regards to becoming less fearful is that you need to develop for yourself a vision of what your life could be if you were living it properly, even by your own definition, so that engaging in risky endeavors, the sort of risky endeavors that life requires, becomes self-evidently justified by the profundity of your vision for your existence. And we've, we've been using, I think I've talked to you a little bit about it, but I developed with my colleagues a program called the Future Authoring Program. I don't remember if the last time we talked, if I, did I set up a code for your listeners? No, you didn't. Oh, I should do that. So, so I, yeah. I, I should do that and, and set up a discount yes, code for your listeners. So I'll, I'll set that up today. But the future authoring program is part of a suite of programs called the self-authoring suite. And it's out selfauthoring.com. And what there's, there's programs there that help people write about their past. So helps them write an autobiography helps them write about their personality faults and virtues, and then helps them outline a three to five year plan for their life. And writing about your past can help you clarify what's happened to you and figure out where you are. And, you know, imagine you're trying to make your way through a strange city and you're trying to get to your destination. I mean, in order to do that, you need to know where your destination is, but you also need to know where you are at that moment. And if you don't know where you are, then you're lost. And if you're lost, then you're anxious. And so one of the advantages to writing about your past, so the, the past authoring program asked you to divide your life into six parts and then to divide each of those parts into important, emotionally significant events and then to write about the effects, positive and negative, of those emotionally significant events. And it's designed to catch you up It's it's designed to gather all the parts of you that are sort of spread out too vaguely and to pull yourself together so that you know where you are. And then the future authoring program is designed to help you figure out where you're going. And that those the combination of those two things can reduce the amount of uncertainty in your life. And that reduces anxiety. But it's also the case that if you formulate a set of Well, a, a personal vision, let's say, a, a true personal vision, and you formulate a plan for attaining that, then that also gives your life purpose and meaning. And that also, that gives you courage and fortitude in the face of uncertainty. So you could kind of have your cake and eat it too. You can figure out where you are and where you're going, and that makes you less anxious. But then by also deciding under what conditions your life would be optimally worth living, 
that can give you enough courage to go out and confront things that might otherwise stop you in your tracks and make you too anxious and depressed. I've tried the program. I really liked it. And I recommend everybody to try it. Besides being a podcast producer and a host, I also work as a mental trainer. Yes, right. Uh, and, from, and from my perspective, it's a lot about what you say, uh, Craig Rolls, where we're going to go, but also about uh, accomplishment. I've, I believe that accomplishment is uh, one of the most important feelings that you have. So if you want to overcome fear, it's about feeling accomplishment uh, and at the same time expose ourselves in this in the situation. For example, if you're afraid, afraid of flying, you need to set some uh, clear goals for yeah. this flight. And uh, for example, if you know that you're going to be scared most of the time, you can say, "Okay, I can be afraid two times, and the rest are going to be, I'm going to be uh, calm and feel this going to be a great flight." <laughs> and in that way, you feel accomplishment for yeah. two times. You felt calm. Yeah, well, that's that's a good observation because one of the things you want to do when you're training yourself to face something that's threatening is to set the threshold for your accomplishment high enough so that you improve, but low enough so that you have a pretty good chance of hitting the goal. Now, that's a really good way of managing yourself in general. It's like you want to set a goal that pushes you beyond your limits, but that you have a reasonable probability of attaining. And that way, you're 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 there's justice in that because it's pushing you forward and holding you to a standard and there's some mercy in it because there's a good probability that you can succeed in that and that that will that will help you validate your existence in your own eyes and the accomplishment issue like that's an interesting one because it does seem to me that people are built for in some sense they're built for a weight and because our lives are bounded by tra- are bounded first by mortality and also also characterized by tragedy you have to live in a manner that has a certain amount of nobility in order for you to tolerate your own existence without becoming contemptuous of yourself and then sort of spiraling down that depression anxiety rabbit hole and so it's of crucial importance that people develop a vision for their life and 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 to to set goals that transform their character and keep moving them upward the you could say up the hierarchy of being it's the right thing for people to do. And so that's it's very, very practical advice. Yeah, and from my experience, together with self-authoring program, I believe that mental training is extremely important because I believe that uh, when you're writing yes. something, you also have to do it. So, so when you're writing something, yeah, become aware of what you need to do, but also need to do it. And uh, what, what, why do you think this is, Jordan, that uh, we believe that from my from my experience now, after doing this for quite a few years now, is that the mental part is like a muscle. We need we need to build this uh, mental part uh, as a muscle. We need to train it, the same as we train its uh, physical body. But why is it that we believe that we do not uh, need to train this mental part, but we need to train this physical part? Well, I, I don't I don't know. I, that's a, such a good question. I mean, here's a hypothesis for you. So about. 15 years ago, maybe, I started using the future authoring program in my classes. Wow. Uh, in my wow. Fif- 15, 15 years ago. Yeah, and that, that was when we were first starting to develop it. And, and I did that partly because this Maps of Meaning class that I was teaching that, that's also online, people can, can watch it, has to do with, it's based on the proposition that the best way to describe your life is as a story and that you should... You should be living out a story consciously because otherwise you live out one unconsciously and that's not a very good idea because it might be a bad story if you're living it out unconsciously. Or it's a bunch of fragmentary stories that don't work very well together and so you get in your own way all the time. you know. Or you're a bit part in someone else's drama or something like that. But the, the bottom line is you're stuck in a story and maybe you could decide what the story was going to be and that you should. Now... Now, okay, so so that was the background, and then, but more specifically, it was all right. Well, you have to write out your future story. So I had students start to think. So here, here's the way it works: is you're supposed to, first of all, put yourself in the proper mindset, and the mindset is like a reverie or 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 daydream mindset, but it's but a serious one. And so you're contemplating your own existence, and then you say to yourself, okay, well, if I was acting like I was someone I was taking care of, which, first of all, 
that starts to be difficult right off the bat because people don't necessarily take care of themselves like there's someone they're caring for. It's actually quite infrequent that they do that. So you because they're very aware of their own faults and their and their lack of virtues and their and the horrible, you know, catastrophe of their life. And so they're embarrassed about themselves and, and ashamed and they don't take care of themselves properly. So the first thing is you have to cut yourself a break and say, I'm going to treat myself I'm going to act as if I'm someone worth taking care of, and I'm going to see if I could if I could put myself in in the in the state of mind that would enable that. And then the next issue is okay. Let's imagine that you were taking care of yourself, and that you could have what you that you could have what would be good for you if you were careful about specifying it. The next issue is okay. What would that be? It's like, and then we think, well, okay. Well, what are the important things to consider? Well, I ask people to consider the quality of their intimate relationship, their family interactions, their choice of career, their productive and high quality activities outside of work, their care for their mental and physical health, and the avoidance of pitfalls like alcohol and drug uh, abuse. And so we could say, all right, so now you're going to imagine what your life would be if you got to have what you would need to have on all of those dimensions and that that was balanced properly for you as far as you're concerned. What would that look like? Well, then we get people to write about that a little bit. Then we get people to make a plan to bring that into being. Okay, so but back to your original question. Why don't people do that? Well, when when I formulated the program, that problem really started to bother me. I thought, well, Jesus, I'm I'm dealing with these students that have been in university, in school for 15 years. Then they're high-end students, most of them, and no one had ever sat them down ever once in their entire life and said, okay, um, spend three hours justifying your existence. You know, like just like you'd write in a history essay. It's like, okay, here, who are you? And what's good about you and what's not so good? What could use some improvement? And where do you want to be and who do you want to be in three years? And I don't mean your career. I mean, what sort of person would it be good for you to be in three years that would make, that would justify your life to yourself? No one ever asked them that. And that just, I still can't believe that. But then I learned that the public school system in North America was based on the Prussian military model from the late 1800s. And the Prussian military model was predicated on the idea that the proper function of a public education system was to produce obedient soldiers slash workers. Well, that's not the same as producing autonomous people who set their own destinies. And so that that idea of producing obedient workers is built right into the foundation of the education system, right from kindergarten onward. And that's why you see, see, if you look at a school, I, I presume they're the same in Scandinavia, but you think about the way a school is arranged. It's in a factory-like building. And the students all sit in rows of desks. And there's a clear leader at the front. And there are bells that time everything. I mean, it's basically a factory. And what the children are trained to do is to become workers who are governed by the clock, who take their direction from a central authority. And, like, I'm not a particular egalitarian person. And I understand that there needs to be clear lines of authority in schools. But the schools aren't predicated on the idea that their central function is to produce autonomous, self-directed individuals. And so, and I think it's because we haven't shaken ourselves out of the, what, latter third of the Industrial Revolution model. That's still what our our school systems are predicated on. And and it's not the late, it's not the end of the 1800s anymore. It's not even close to that. Or so, so that needs to be updated and people need to be taught and encouraged to think about themselves and their place in the world and to set a target for their existence, for the development of their character and strive towards that. And all that does when people try to do it is make them better. It makes them less fearful. It makes them less depressed. It gives them more hope. It makes them more reliable for their family. It makes them better citizens. It's It makes them less nihilistic about life. Um, it gives them something to get out of bed for in the morning. Like all of it is good. 
And so, well, hopefully we'll wake up and figure out that that's what needs to be done. That's that that would be good. Yeah, and I, the reason I wanted to, to ask that question, Jordan, is that the reason I am talking, I, I don't know if I've explained this before, the reason I'm talking to you now is that back in 2011, I experienced panic attacks for a long period of time, uh, for a four months straight, I think, 24-7, and uh, I, I couldn't find any help anywhere. So uh, one, uh, one evening, I decided either I'm jumping out of the window, I was exhausted, or I'm going to find a solution. So uh, gladly I find a solution, and I went to the computer, and uh, I think I ordered 30 books from Amazon. I have about mindfulness and anxiety. And uh, that led me into this, uh, into this endeavor with uh, mental training. And I think I'm a pretty focused person. So uh, when I'm going into something, I'm going into it. So uh, for the last now six years, right. I've been giving all, all of my time into the mental aspect. And that is also the reason of this podcast, to share these techniques. And from my experience yeah. now that uh, if there's something I fear, I go into it by the with the thinking of accomplishment, of course, and that is a perfect uh, opportunity for mental training. So bef- uh, before I was afraid of flying. So I did what I said earlier about setting these clear goals. And I know that uh, if mm-hmm. I felt this fear, I said to myself, oh, this is a perfect opportunity for mental training. I stole this from Travis Mace, by the way. And he's an ultra, he's an ultra runner. And for each time I train the mind to experience this fear in a positive way, I do not experience fear anymore. So what I teach my clients is that every opportunity uh, that you feel that uh, your life is going yeah. um, going not your way and if you encounter something you can think about it it's a perfect opportunity for mental training if yeah if you believe for yourself that it's important to build this as a muscle so uh, one year ago i started to work with a ceo and he said that uh, Mm-hmm. He was a little bit ashamed of working about the mental aspect because he believed that this is uh, awesome sickness. And uh, now after one year, he's talking about it everywhere because now he has finally understand that working with the mental aspect is nothing to be ashamed about. It's just helping you uh, progress even more. So do you believe that uh, this, this uh, standard from the late 1800s that do uh, make us feel ashamed of doing something about the mental aspect? or Because the mental aspect mm-hmm. is extremely important. From studies shows that almost 40% of all everything we do every day is automatic from, from uh, what I read. And that means that there is uh, our habits and our response patterns. Is that correct, Jordan? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so let, let me respond to, let me respond to a couple of things there. Okay. So the first thing you said, which I really liked was that you can, you can take a different tack on your fear. So let's say that you have a goal and then an obstacle arises and that makes you afraid. Now you can regard that as an enemy and shrink away from it. Or you can think, Oh, look, I know that what I'm pursuing is important, and now this fear-related obstacle has arisen. That gives me an opportunity to strengthen my character. I mean, it's, it's a pain and all that because it makes you nervous, but the nervousness is an indication that there's something about you that's lacking in relationship to your pursuit of the goal, and that's a perfect opportunity for self-development. So, for example, let's say that you decide that you're going to have a broader social life, and then you realize that one of the things that, or maybe a a more effective career. And one of the things that that necessitates is learning to speak in public. And then you realize that you're terrified of doing that. And you could say, oh my God, I'm terrified of doing that. That's a terrible thing. I better drop my plan. I better go hide in my room. I better not go out and talk to people. Or you could say, hey, isn't that interesting? It turns out that I happen to be afraid of public speaking. Well, I should do something about that because well, maybe you could because people can speak in public and why the hell couldn't you? And so maybe I should go take a course or maybe I should start at least imagining standing in front of 10 people and talking to them. And maybe I should figure out how to learn how to articulate my ideas better. And so it's a massive opportunity for growth. And so one of the things that I think is really useful about the way you formulate it is that you can consider an obstacle that produces fear a great friend 
because it points out a place that you need development and there will be spin-off benefits from that development like you can't believe. So, so then what you're doing basically is transforming a threat into a challenge. And that actually produces tremendous psychophysiological changes because when you respond to something... I love flying now. Mm, well, there you, there you go. And, yeah. Well, and now you've also yeah. trained yourself through observation to notice that if you find something that you're afraid of and you decide to take it apart and master it, that you can. So not only did you get rid of the fear, but you got you practiced mastering the process that helped you get rid of the fear. Okay, so that's really useful. So it's like, oh, I discovered something I don't want to do and that I'm shunning. It's like, great, that's an opportunity for further growth. That's a really useful thing. It's a really useful thing to discover. And then you talked about the shame that's associated with the idea of mental development. It's Yeah, it's, it's as if we all think that we should be perfect psychologically and spiritually, even though no one thinks about that physically. It's like people know perfectly well that if they want to put themselves together physically, they have to start running and go to the gym. And I mean, people are embarrassed about that often, that they're in such terrible shape. But they don't assume that they should just be perfect to begin with. But our psychological education is is pretty underdeveloped. I, that's what I would say about it, is mm. that we're, we're – and sure. it's not – again, it's not something that's taught <clears throat> well in school. Even in the, Even the process of, okay, I'm afraid of something. Well, what do you do about it? Well, you think about what you're afraid of. Then you break it down into small pieces that are manageable. Then you practice managing each of the small pieces, and then you get over your fear. I mean, people aren't taught that, and it's an extraordinarily effective technique. And so I think it's just that our psychological education is not very sophisticated, and that's partly why people have a sh- have shame about not being as well put together as they might be and also don't know exactly what to do about it. The other thing, too, is, is that people have this tendency to assume that they're the only crazy person on the planet. So, you know, you've got your weird set of peculiarities and you don't want to talk about them much because you think, oh, my God, if people knew this about me, God only knows what they would think. And they're out there having their (laughs) Facebook lives, you know, where everything is going wonderfully. And I'm laying here suffering miserably with my foolishness. And what people also don't realize is that everybody has problems. And almost everybody has at least one serious problem. But certainly, even the people who don't have a serious problem have a small host of, of, you know, non-trivial problems that they have to deal with. And so realizing that you're that you have a psychological inadequacy is almost exactly the same thing as joining the human race. (laughs) Uh, One last thing I have to ask you about that I think is extremely important, Jordan. This uh, is about awareness. And from the study shows that 40% of everything that happens in our day is automatic and there is our habits. That means that everything that we think about every day is in some way already uh, planted there when we're six years old, planted, but uh, is already in sure, our structure sure. when, we're six years, six, when we're six years old. So, and this is something I, I'm trying as good as I can to to tell more about this awareness and that is uh, some of the mechanisms behind the self-authoring platform you're having that uh, when we're asking questions and answering it it brings this awareness but can you elaborate a little bit about this uh, awareness and why do we do this uh, all these habits and everything automatically well, have, okay so so the first thing is is that like when you when you start to develop a new skill it's very difficult because you don't know how to perceive and you don't know how to move your body and you don't know how to respond emotionally and so it's very very demanding use a tremendous amount of psychophysiological resources in order to practice a new skill but then as you get better and better at it you stop wasting time and energy while you're doing it and the brain systems that you use to engage in the activity become more and more concentrated and more and more specialized until basically what happens is that through practice, you build a little machine, let's say, at the back of your head, the back of your brain, that's specialized for that particular operation. And then it's extraordinarily efficient. And so then it's easier just to run on automatic. But you build those habits. The habits are built consciously, but they run unconsciously. And it's a matter of efficiency. 
essentially. Like, for example, by the time you're an expert driver, you're doing almost everything implicitly. And that's why you can think about all sorts of things while you're driving, because you've built little automatic machines that take care of almost all of the micro habits. Like, you know exactly how hard to push on the brake. You know exactly how much resistance there is in the steering wheel. You know exactly how to look at the road. And that's all the consequence of hundreds of hours of practice and the development of neural circuits that are specialized for that. And, and partly what you're doing when you're building your character, by the way, is that you're building the micro habits, the micro habit machines into your physical architecture that you would like to, to have running. And you can build new ones. The new ones inhibit the old ones. The old ones don't disappear and they can pop back on you and in, in periods of stress. But what you do when you set a goal and then start practicing the routines is that you start building new automatic habits that can carry you through your life. And that, that's an extraordinarily useful thing to do. But the reason it happens is a matter of efficiency. You want a dedicated circuit that does things automatically and stupidly in a sense, because like once you know how to do something, you can do it without thinking. That's almost the definition of knowing how to do something. And the advantage of that is efficiency and circuitry and, 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 and far less use of time and resources. So partly, and this is the other thing that's not taught to people very well, is that a lot of what you're doing in your life is developing your character. And you might think of your character as the sum total of your automatic habits. And so you should practice doing things. You should practice being the way you would like to be automatically. And if you practice that enough, then you become that automatically. You just it, it, it becomes part of your implicit character. And that's an extraordinarily useful thing to know as well. So fake it to make it. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. It's 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 you, you have to you have to act out something before you can become it very frequently. And that's the reason people think that it's about faking it. And uh, what you just said that you have to fake it before it's going to be the real thing. Yeah, it's well, it's 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 you're not. Yeah, so well, you okay. have to be imperfect before you can be perfect. And so, and and you're what you're doing when you're faking it. In some senses, you're doing the same kind of pretend play that a child does when he's he or she is trying to figure out how to adopt a new role. And so, it isn't even that you're faking it; it's that you're you're starting to practice who you want to become. And and you're going to do that badly. And and people and. That's 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 why you feel like you're an imposter so frequently when you try something new. It's because well you are, but that that shouldn't stop you. the 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 reason it's not faking it is because when you're starting to practice something new, it's actually okay to admit to yourself and others that you don't know what you're doing and that you're just learning, and that's actually okay. And so you say, well, what right do you have to do that? And the answer is, well, I have no right to do it right now, except that I'm practicing learning how to do it well. And since everyone has to practice learning how to do things well, then we have to allow people the right to be fools when they first start doing something. We have to allow ourselves the same right. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks a lot. It's always good to talk to you. Uh, likewise. Right. Have a great you day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you all for tuned in to listen to this episode as well with Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. It was another great interview. And I am sure you have, all, you have all got a lot of insights from it too. If you like this episode, please share it to other people who can also benefit from this life-changing interview. If you like Dr. Peterson, remember to check our previous interviews, his website and social media pages that you can find on our podcast website. Check his future ultra program, an affordable yet very effective program I've used it myself, designed to help you imagine your ideal future three to five years down the road and give you the questions you need to ask yourself, the tools to build the future. Use the code Nielsen and get a discount. That's all from me for today. Subscribe to our channel for more inspiring podcasts and success mindset strategies. More about my coaching services and published articles can be found on the page. Bye for now and have a mentally strong day.